Episode 306, Chapters 3 and 4 of Age of Innocence. Welcome to Craftlet. The podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the shores of the Potomac in Virginia, the Old Dominion. Episode 306, Keep It Weird. This episode brought to you by Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories for heart and home. And Knit Circus, the e-newsletter delivered to your mailbox, bringing you three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at www.knitcircus.com. And Pennywise Consulting, technology solutions for your small business. And links to all of our sponsors can be found in the sidebar of the show notes at craftlit.com. Please visit them as their support for the show is one of the things that keeps it free for you. Well, hello and welcome back to chapters three and four of The Age of Innocence by Edith Wharton. For those of you who are new listeners, just a quick reminder, the way this podcast works is I talk you through some of the things that might be confusing to modern ears about the book we're listening to, and then I play you the audiobook itself, which is why we call these audiobooks with benefits. People have used different words to describe what it is that we do on the podcast. Some say it's unlocking the book for you. Some say it's curating the book for you. Whichever term you prefer, that's what we're doing. Now, the Just the Books podcast is exactly the same audio as the Craftlet podcast with the crafty chat removed. So if being crafty is not your bag of tricks, I think you might want to head over to just-the-books.com for the book audio. We also have a premium audio stream, which is a different book than The Age of Innocence. Right now we're doing Bleak House. And there's a link in the show notes that will tell you more about the streaming-only or download-only subscription options, in case that's a book you're interested in listening to. We also have a few books over in our shop that are complete and downloadable audiobooks with benefits, and you can find that at crafting-a-life.com slash shop. And there will be a link to that in the show notes as well. So this being Craftlet, I do have some crafty information for you. First is another craft podcast that you might be interested in trying out. This one comes from Indonesia. Here you go. Welcome to the Lost Geek Podcast promo. This is Arlen, your host. Come and get lost in my geeky fiber adventures with a dash of Indonesian flavor. So what can you expect from my regular episode? I'm a knitter and a spinner living in Indonesia and I talk about knitting and spinning and other fiber-related adventures and also adventures in Indonesia, life here, and sometimes my travel and also a lot of geeky things. And here are some of my regular segments. The Worldly Geek, where I talk about my spinning. Recalculating Route, where I talk about life in Indonesia and non-fiber-related adventures. Into the Blue, where I talk more in-depth about knitting or spinning. Get Your Geek On, in which a lot of geeky things abound. And Tadaima, housekeeping and parenting, motherhood, 
my personal life stuff. I hope you will check out the podcast. You can find me on iTunes under the Lost Geek podcast or the RSS feed for the show is thelostgeek.libsyn.com slash RSS. That is L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. On Ravelry, you can find me as The Lost Geek and I am on Twitter and Instagram as well. So find me and until next time, don't get too lost. Bye. I was so excited to get this promo from Orlin because this just proves one of the things that I've been seeing in our statistics at Craftlet. As the audience has grown, as more of you have found the podcast, more of you are from all over the world. And that just thrills me no end. It is so exciting. So Lost Geek Podcast, new, interesting very different podcast from what you might be used to. And I'm so excited I was able to bring that promo for you. Another little promo I wanted to tell you about is uh, a radio show called Ace Galaxy. Uh, this is a satire of science fiction podcasty shows. It's kind of like an old-timey radio adventure because they've got sound effects and stuff like that. Um, it's produced by uh, a team of Canadians, as far as I could tell. I've listened to about two-thirds of it, and um, I thought I'd pass the link along to you in case you are that kind of science fiction-y listener who enjoys stuff like that. So, link to Ace Galaxy in the show notes. And Galaxy, don't expect it to be spelled the way you think it's going to be spelled. It's G-A-L-A-K-S-I. So, Ace Galaxy, something else for you to look out for. Audioboo. If you're in the UK, you may be familiar with Audioboo. If you are not, you probably aren't. Audioboo is doing a better job of what some previous, and I mean like five years ago, uh, websites tried to do in getting a, a Twitter kind of thing going that is audio-based. Audioboo is something that you can run on your phone or smart device, it's something you can go to online on a browser, or it is a way for you to record an up to three minute post to me. So if you have a comment, and you'll hear some comments that showed up in the show notes this last week at the end of today's episode that I, I read to you, but if you want to send one with your own sweet voice, you can Click the link on the show notes at craftlit.com. You'll see, if you scroll down just a little bit, a very clear Audioboo link. Record, sends to me automatically, and then I can play your audio on the show. So, cool little widget there for you. I was very excited to, ha to have that uh, offered to us. The Audioboo people actually came to me and said, do you want to start a channel? So we now have a Craftlet channel on Audioboo as well, which is just another way to listen if you're already on it. I am supposed to be starting a Fosco knit-along on the What Would Madame Defarge Knit group on Ravelry. And I am here to apologize and tell you that that will not be possible, uh, at least not, not in the near future, uh, probably. A lot is happening right now. And some of that is gainful employment, which is really not a bad thing for Heather. So I'm gonna I'm gonna reset the Fosco knit along 
for later, but it's it's not it's not quite happening now. However, there are other marvelous knit-alongs going on over at WWMDFK, the What Would Madame Defarge Knit Group on Ravelry. And all of our knit-alongs are very low-key. So if you pop in late, don't worry about a thing. Nobody will mind. They're just glad you're there. Plus, you know, reading back through the thread, you can find out where people got stuck on tricky bits and where they needed help. And the designers are right there. Uh, ear burn them if they don't answer you right away. And um, and have fun knitting some stuff from what else would Madame Defarge knit? Uh, don't forget, there is a raffle going on at craftlit.com. In the show notes, I found this new widget thingy called Rafflecopter. So if you make a comment in the show notes, go back up a little bit and you'll see this Rafflecopter entry thing. Enter there. And then I don't have to use the random number generator. I can have the Rafflecopter on the Craftlit site and on the Just the Book site. And everybody's entries get thrown into the same pot. And that way I can really nicely and fairly choose randomly choose a winner for the awesome necklace that is being offered as this month's little special prize. These are the Age of Innocence pendants that are being uh, given away by Catherine Barbosa to a lucky Craftlet and Just the Books listener. Please take a look at the pictures because today one of those pictures will make a lot more sense. And I'm not telling you which one until after. And the last newsy crafty bit is I am finishing a new pattern. It's a Mobius cowl for my sister. She doesn't listen to the podcast, so I can tell you. She challenged me. She said, I bet you can't knit a Mobius strip. And I said, oh, contraire, mon. I didn't call her mon frere because that would be silly. But uh, I told her that I could, and she said, I want one. And I thought, there's your birthday present. So I have been working on this for my, my sister, and it is symbolic. But it's, uh, it's almost done. The pattern's almost done being written and blocked and all of that. And then I will have that out. So subscribers, you will have a new pattern coming to you. Everyone else, the pattern will be in the shop on Etsy and at Ravelry.com, along with all the audiobooks and all the other stuff that we have out there. Now, I got an email from a listener last week saying, didn't you say that there was going to be a way to read and listen at the same time? And the answer is yes. I have been working on the Age of Innocence enhanced ebook. Um, right now, it's trying to find a way to disseminate that to you in a way that will let you update it every week because I'll be adding new chapters and new audio and new links every week to the book. And so we want you to be able to click, you buy it and you click one link and then next week you can click the same link and it'll just download on top of the original and you can keep reading it that way. That's the goal. I'm still trying to find the right plugin thing to allow this to happen. As soon as we can figure that out, those will be available for you. So, um, so it's coming, but it may not happen until next week because of that gainful employment thing. Pesky gainful employment getting in the way of our fun. And last newsy bit, tomorrow, Saturday, uh, July 6th, I will be on Twitter at 11 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. And uh, it'll be a Twitter conversation interview thing called Knit Chat. So if you follow the hashtag Knit Chat, K-N-I-T, 
C-H-A-T, all one word, you'll be able to follow the conversation and ask me questions about anything while you're at it. There's information about it at mamaownits.com, but there will also be information on the show notes for this episode, episode 306, including the ability to follow the Twitter stream from our show notes. So that, I think, is everything. All right, housekeeping out of the way, time to talk about the Age of Innocence. So last week, we were introduced to an awful lot of stuff. We were introduced to some characters, very important ones, Newland Archer and Mae Welland especially, but also Ellen Olenska, who is an outsider in the midst of New York fashionable society. And we started to get a sense of how that society, that old New York society from 1870, uh, valued itself and judged one another. And you'll notice that Newland Archer, when he came into the opera, they were watching Faust, when he came into the opera, he didn't go sit with family. He didn't go sit with the ladies. He went to the club box because, of course, these men would have a club that they went to. And you'll hear a little bit more about that kind of club culture as we go into today's episode's chapters. So today you're going to hear a little bit more about a couple of people. Julius Beaufort and his wife will be, and they're not main characters, but they're important characters. So you'll hear quite a bit more about them at the beginning of this uh, pair of chapters that we're going to go over today. But you're also going to hear about Medora Manson. Now she won't crop up again for quite some time, but do try to remember how she is described in this chapter. It matters. You'll also hear a French term that is assigned to Medora Manson that uh, once, once you're related to uh, these, these families that you're going to hear them talk about today, that you have a, a droit, a right, de cité, um, a, a right of citizenship, a reason, a reason to be there, a right to be there within the society that we're examining here in New York City in 1870. You will hear a list of colors that end with the French bouton d'or. And if you don't know what that means, which I didn't, it is the color buttercup. But you know, it sounds so much more expensive if you say it in French. And more on the kind of descriptions of your location, you will hear about a library hung with Spanish leather and furnished with bull and malachite. And bull is a brass or tortoiseshell material cut into a pattern and used for inlaying, so that gives you an idea of this glorious inlaid library that you get to spend some time in, at least in your mind. And there's an interesting bit that I haven't been able to figure out. Edith Wharton will reference a painting that she references in, in English as Love Victorious by Bougereau. And Bougereau has a painting called Victorious Love, that's a, it's a little Cupid painting. It's cute. And of course, little Cupid is nude and he's a little kid and that's fine. But there's another painting by Caravaggio called Love Victorious that is of a slightly older Cupid and seems far more scandalous. But so there's the Victorious Love, Love Victorious thing. Bougereau is the one who cited that painting doesn't seem so scandalous to me. 
But the love victorious from Caravaggio, I could see some women being scandalized if they had to walk past that into the ballroom. So I don't, I don't know if she made a mistake or if, if it was just any nude was a nude too far for the women in 1870s New York. I don't know. But it's a, it's a curious one. And I've linked to from the show notes for that. You will hear of women who are wearing aigrettes or ornaments in their hair. Those are egret feathers. It's a kind of a, a, a little decorative ornament that was created out of egret feathers. Um, and glacé gloves. Those are kid leather gloves that have a special finish put on them. So they are quite shiny and, uh, of course, quite delicate and expensive. And then at the end of chapter three, there's a, a conversation that happens between May, Welland, and Archer that I think is just so important to the entirety of the book. But we've already seen an inkling of this at the end of chapter two, when Newland went over to uh, May's box to show his support for Ellen Olenska being there, since um, since uh, Sillerton Jackson had said that I didn't think the Mingotts would have tried it on. Uh, he goes over and, and shows his support, and May's eyes say, you see why Mama brought me. And his eyes answered, I would not for the world have had you stay away. There's this implication that they are constantly reading each other's thoughts, that they are so in tune as being of this particular society at this particular time in New York City, that they they don't even have to speak with words. They just understand one another. And what a what a lovely place to be at as you are looking toward getting married and and being with this person for the rest of your life. That's a a lovely, lovely thing. And you'll see some more of that at the end of chapter three today. And it's, it's just important to keep it in mind as we move forward through the story. Chapter four then ends the the opening Faust and the opening ball scene and moves us into the next day. And of course, if you've just gotten engaged, one of the things one must do is visit all the right people and make sure that everyone is happy and content with your engagement. And so off go Newland and May and and May's mother, and they have to pay their respects in the proper order. So of course, they're going to start with Mrs. Manson Mingott. And now you get to see a description of where she lives. I have linked to what I can from the show notes because there's a lot of description that goes on here. Uh, A cabbage rose garlanded carpets, which are a particular kind of carpet that I found pictures of. So you can see that. Uh, The second empire was the uh, second Napoleonic empire in France. Uh, They talk about her house being you know, up Fifth Avenue near the Central Park, this this wild land up there, and talk about the, the hoardings and the quarries and the one-story saloons and the wooden greenhouses and ragged gardens and the rocks from which goats surveyed the scene. And if you've ever spent any time in the southern edge of Central Park, you know the rocks that I'm thinking of, because that's right by where all the interesting stuff is. You've got uh, Woolman Rink and you've got the the carousel and lots of kids play around. I think there's a park there too and they play around on the rocks. So yeah, there were big rocks there and they're still there and that's that's kind of cool. And I apologize for all of my lousy French, but there's a, a reference to a looped back yellow damask portier. And this was a 
big curtain that either hung above a door or that hung next to a door, but it could be pulled to the side. Often, if you didn't have a door, but you needed to have some kind of protective barrier for keeping the cold out, you would have this heavy curtain. And so it comes from the French word port, which is door. So don't forget, you are going to begin chapter three with uh, stories about the Beaufort family. And then Beaufort will crop up again before we are done today. I'm going to go ahead now and play you chapters three and four of Edith Wharton's The Age of Innocence, as read to you by Brenda Dane. Chapter 3 It invariably happened in the same way. Mrs. Julius Beaufort, on the night of her annual ball, never failed to appear at the opera. Indeed, she always gave her ball on an opera night in order to emphasize her complete superiority to household cares and her possession of a staff of servants competent to organize every detail of the entertainment in her absence. The Beaufort's house was one of the few in New York that possessed a ballroom. It even antedated Mrs. Manson Mingott's and the Headley Chiverses, and at a time when it was beginning to be thought provincial to put a crash over the drawing-room floor and move the furniture upstairs, the possession of a ballroom that was used for no other purpose and left for 364 days of the year to shutter darkness, with its gilt chairs stacked in a corner and its chandelier in a bag, this undoubted superiority was felt to compensate for whatever was regrettable in the Beaufort past. Mrs. Archer, who was fond of coining her social philosophy into axioms, had once said, We all have our pet common people. And though the phrase was a daring one, its truth was secretly admitted in many an exclusive bosom. But the Beauforts were not exactly common some people said they were even worse. Mrs. Beaufort belonged, indeed, to one of America's most honored families. She had been the lovely Regina Dallas of the South Carolina branch, a penniless beauty introduced to New York society by her cousin, the imprudent Medora Manson, who was always doing the wrong thing from the right motive. When one was related to the Mansons and Rushworths, one had a droit de cite, as Mr. Sillerton Jackson, who had frequented the Tuileries, called it, in New York society. But did one not forfeit it in marrying Julius Beaufort? The question was, who was Beaufort? He passed for an Englishman, was agreeable, handsome, ill-tempered, hospitable, and witty, he had come to America with letters of recommendation from old Mrs. Manson Mingott's English son-in-law, the banker, and had speedily made himself an important position in the world of affairs. But his habits were dissipated, his tongue was bitter, his antecedents were mysterious. And when Medora Manson announced her cousin's engagement to him, it was felt to be one more act of folly, in poor Medora's long record of imprudences. 
But folly is as often justified of her children as wisdom. And two years after young Mrs. Beaufort's marriage, it was admitted that she had the most distinguished house in New York. No one knew exactly how the miracle was accomplished. She was indolent, passive, the caustic even called her dull, but dressed like an idol, hung with pearls, growing younger and blonder and more beautiful each year, she throned in Mr. Beaufort's heavy brownstone palace and drew all the world there without lifting her jeweled little finger. The knowing people said it was Beaufort himself who trained the servants, taught the chef new dishes, told the gardeners what hothouse flowers to grow for the dinner table and the drawing rooms, selected the guests, brewed the after-dinner punch, and dictated the little notes his wife wrote to her friends. If he did, these domestic activities were privately performed, and he presented to the world the appearance of a careless and hospitable millionaire strolling into his own drawing-room with the detachment of an invited guest and saying, My wife's gloxinias are a marvel, aren't they? I believe she gets them out from Q. Mr. Beaufort's secret, people were agreed, was the way he had carried things off. It was all very well to whisper that he had been helped to leave England by the international banking house in which he had been employed. He carried off that rumor as easily as the rest, though New York's business conscience was no less sensitive than its moral standard. He carried everything before him and all New York into his drawing rooms, and for over twenty years now people had said they were going to the Beauforts with the same tone of security as if they had said they were going to Mrs. Manson Mingott's, and with the added satisfaction of knowing that they would get hot canvas-back ducks and vintage wines, instead of tepid Veuve Clicquot without a year, and warmed-up croquettes from Philadelphia. Mrs. Beaufort, then, had, as usual, appeared in her box just before the jewel song. And when, again, as usual, she rose at the end of the third act, drew her opera cloak about her lovely shoulders, and disappeared, New York knew that meant that half an hour later the ball would begin. The Beaufort House was one that New Yorkers were proud to show foreigners, especially on the night of the annual ball. The Beauforts had been among the first people in New York to own their own red velvet carpet and have it rolled down the steps by their own footmen under their own awning instead of hiring it with the supper and the ballroom chairs. They had also inaugurated the custom of letting the ladies take their cloaks off in the hall, instead of shuffling up to the hostess's bedroom and recurling their hair with the aid of the gas burner. Beaufort was understood to have said that he supposed all his wife's friends had maids who saw to it that they were properly quaffed when they left home. Then the house had been boldly planned, with a ballroom, so that instead of squeezing through a narrow passage to get to it, as at the Chiverses, one marched solemnly down a vista of enfiladed drawing-rooms, the sea-green, 
the crimson, and the bouton d'or. Seeing from afar the many-candled lusters reflected in the polished parquetry, and beyond that the depths of a conservatory where camellias and tree ferns arched their costly foliage over seats of black and gold bamboo. Newland Archer, as became a young man of his position, strolled in, somewhat late. He had left his overcoat with the silk-stockinged footman, the stockings were one of Beaufort's new fatuities, had dawdled a while in the library hung with Spanish leather and furnished with bull and malachite, where a few men were chatting and putting on their dancing gloves, and had finally joined the line of guests whom Mrs. Beaufort was receiving on the threshold of the crimson drawing-room. Archer was distinctly nervous. He had not gone back to his club after the opera, as the young bloods usually did, but the night being fine had walked for some distance up Fifth Avenue before turning back in the direction of the Beauforts' house. He was definitely afraid that the Mingotts might be going too far, that, in fact, they might have Granny Mingott's orders to bring the Countess Olenska to the ball. From the tone of the club box he had perceived how grave a mistake that would be, and though he was more than ever determined to see the thing through, he felt less chivalrously eager to champion his betrothed's cousin than before their brief talk at the opera. Wandering on to the Bouton d'Or drawing-room, where Beaufort had had the audacity to hang Love Victorious, the much-discussed nude of Beaujeroux, Archer found Mrs. Welland and her daughter standing near the ballroom door. Couples were already gliding over the floor beyond. The light of the wax candles fell on revolving tulle skirts, on girlish heads wreathed with modest blossoms, on the dashing aigrettes and ornaments of the young married women's coiffures, and on the glitter of highly glazed shirt fronts and fresh glacé gloves. Miss Welland, evidently about to join the dancers, hung on the threshold, her lilies of the valley in her hand. She carried no other bouquet. Her face a little pale, her eyes burning with a candid excitement. A group of young men and girls were gathered about her, and there was much hand-clasping, laughing, and pleasantry, on which Mrs. Welland, standing slightly apart, shed the beam of a qualified approval. It was evident that Miss Welland was in the act of announcing her engagement, while her mother affected the air of parental reluctance, considered suitable to the occasion. Archer paused a moment. It was at his express wish that the announcement had been made, and yet it was not thus that he would have wished to have his happiness known. To proclaim it in the heat and noise of a crowded ballroom was to rob it of the fine bloom of privacy which should belong to things nearest the heart. His joy was so deep that his blurring of the surface left its essence untouched. But he would have liked to keep the surface pure, too. 
It was something of a satisfaction to find that May Wellen shared this feeling. Her eyes fled to his beseechingly, and their look said, Remember, we're doing this because it's right. No appeal could have found a more immediate response in Archer's breast, but he wished that the necessity of their action had been represented by some ideal reason, and not simply by poor Ellen Olenska. The group about Mrs. Welland made way for him with significant smiles, and after taking his share of the felicitations, he drew his betrothed into the middle of the ballroom floor and put his arm about her waist. Now we shan't have to talk, he said, smiling into her candid eyes, as they floated away on the soft waves of the blue Danube. She made no answer. Her lips trembled into a smile, but the eyes remained distant and serious, as if bent on some ineffable vision. Dear, Archer whispered, pressing her to him. It was borne in on him that the first hours of being engaged, even if spent in a ballroom, had in them something grave and sacramental. What a new life it was going to be, with this whiteness, radiance, goodness at one side. The dance over the two, as became an affianced couple, wandered into the conservatory and, sitting behind a tall screen of tree-ferns and camellias, Newland pressed her gloved hand to his lips. You see, I did as you asked me to, she said. Yes, I couldn't wait, he answered, smiling. After a moment, he added, Only I wish it hadn't had to be at a ball. Yes, I know, she met his glance comprehendingly, but after all, even here we're alone together, aren't we? Oh, dearest, always, Archer cried. Evidently, she was always going to understand. She was always going to say the right thing. The discovery made the cup of his bliss overflow, and he went on gaily, The worst of it is that I want to kiss you, and I can't. As he spoke, he took a swift glance about the conservatory, assured himself of their momentary privacy, and, catching her to him, laid a fugitive pressure on her lips. To counteract the audacity of this proceeding, he led her to a bamboo sofa in a less secluded part of the conservatory, and, sitting down beside her, broke a lily of the valley away from her bouquet. She sat silent, and the world lay like a sunlit valley at their feet. "'Did you tell my cousin Ellen?' she asked presently, as if she spoke through a dream. He roused himself and remembered that he had not done so. Some invincible repugnance to speak of such things to the strange foreign woman had checked the words on his lips. "'No, I hadn't the chance after all,' he said, fibbing hastily. "'Oh, she looked disappointed, but gently resolved on gaining her point.' You must, then, for I didn't either, and I shouldn't like her to think, of course not, 
But aren't you, after all, the person to do it? She pondered on this. If I'd done it at the right time, yes. But now that there's been a delay, I think you must explain that I'd asked you to tell her at the opera before our speaking about it to everybody here. Otherwise, she might think I had forgotten her. You see, she's one of the family, and she's been away so long that she's rather sensitive. Archer looked at her glowingly. Dear and great angel, of course I'll tell her. He glanced a trifle apprehensively around the crowded ballroom. But I haven't seen her yet. Has she come? No, at the last minute she decided not to. At the last minute, he echoed, betraying his surprise that she should ever have considered the alternative possible. Yes, she's awfully fond of dancing, the young woman answered simply. But suddenly she made up her mind that her dress wasn't smart enough for a ball, though we thought it so lovely, and so my aunt had to take her home. Oh, well, said Archer with happy indifference. Nothing about his betrothed pleased him more than her resolute determination to carry to its utmost limit that ritual of ignoring the unpleasant in which they had both been brought up. She knows as well as I do, he reflected, the real reason of her cousin staying away. But I shall never let her see, by the least sign, that I am conscious of there being a shadow of a shade on poor Ellen Olenska's reputation. End of Chapter 3 Chapter 4 In the course of the next day, the first of the usual betrothal visits were exchanged. The New York ritual was precise and inflexible in such matters, and in conformity with it, Newland Archer went, first with his mother and sister, to call on Mrs. Welland, after which he and Mrs. Welland and May drove out to old Mrs. Manson Mingott's to receive that venerable ancestress's blessing. A visit to Mrs. Manson Mingott was always an amusing episode to the young man. The house in itself was already an historic document, though not, of course, as venerable as certain other old family houses in University Place and Lower Fifth Avenue. Those were of the purest, 1830, with a grim harmony of cabbage-rose garlanded carpets, rosewood consoles, round-arched fireplaces with marble-black mantles, and immense glazed bookcases of mahogany. Whereas old Mrs. Mingott, who had built her house later, had bodily cast out the massive furniture of her prime and mingled with the Mingott heirlooms the frivolous upholstery of the Second Empire. It was in her habit to sit in a window of the sitting-room on the ground floor, as if watching calmly for life and fashion to flow northward to her solitary doors. She seemed in no hurry to have them come, for her patience was equaled by her confidence. She was sure that, presently, the hoardings, the quarries, the one-story saloons, the wooden greenhouses and ragged gardens, and the rocks from which goats surveyed the scene, would vanish before the advances of residences as stately as her own, perhaps, for she was an impartial woman, even statelier. 
and that the cobblestones over which the old clattering omnibuses bumped would be replaced by smooth asphalt, such as people reported having seen in Paris. Meanwhile, as everyone she cared to see came to her, and she could fill her rooms as easily as the Beauforts, and without adding a single item to the menu of her suppers, she did not suffer from her geographic isolation. The immense accretion of flesh, which had descended on her in middle life like a flood of lava on a doomed city, had changed her from a plump, active little woman with a neatly turned foot and ankle into something as vast and august as a natural phenomenon. She had accepted this submergence as philosophically as all her other trials, and now, in extreme old age, was rewarded by presenting to her mirror an almost unwrinkled expanse of firm pink-and-white flesh, in the center of which the traces of a small face survived, as if awaiting excavation. A flight of smooth double chins led down to the dizzy depths of a still snowy bosom, veiled in snowy muslins that were held in place by a miniature portrait of the late Mr. Mingott. And around and below, wave after wave of black silk surged away over the edges of a capacious armchair, with two tiny white hands poised like gulls on the surface of the billows. The burden of Mrs. Manson Mingott's flesh had long since made it impossible for her to go up and down stairs, and with characteristic independence she had made her reception rooms upstairs and established herself, in flagrant violation of all the New York proprieties, on the ground floor of her house, so that as you sat in her sitting-room window with her, you caught— through a door that was always open and a looped-back yellow damask portiere, the unexpected vista of a bedroom with a huge low bed upholstered like a sofa and a toilet table with frivolous lace flounces and a gilt-framed mirror. Her visitors were startled and fascinated by the foreignness of this arrangement, which recalled scenes in French fiction and architectural incentives to immorality such as the simple American had never dreamed of. That was how women with lovers lived in the wicked old societies, in apartments with all the rooms on one floor and all the indecent propinquities that their novels described. It amused Newland Archer, who had secretly situated the love scenes of Monsieur de Camor in Mrs. Mingott's bedroom, to picture her blameless life led in this stage setting of adultery. But he said to himself, with considerable admiration, that if a lover had been what she had wanted, the intrepid woman would have had him too. To the general relief, the Countess Olenska was not present in her grandmother's drawing-room during the visit of the betrothed couple. Mrs. Mingott said she had gone out, which, on a day of such glaring sunlight, and at the shopping hour, seemed in itself an indelicate thing for a compromised woman to do. But at any rate it spared them the embarrassment of her presence, and the faint shadow that her unhappy past might seem to shed on their radiant future. 
The visit went off successfully, as was to have been expected. Old Mrs. Mingott was delighted with the engagement, which, being long foreseen by watchful relatives, had been carefully passed upon in family council. And the engagement ring, a large, thick sapphire, set in invisible claws, met with her unqualified admiration. It's the new setting. Of course, it shows the stone beautifully, but it looks a little bare to old-fashioned eyes, Mrs. Welland had explained, with a conciliatory side-glance at her future son-in-law. Old-fashioned eyes? I hope you don't mean mine, my dear. I like all the novelties, said the ancestress, lifting the stone to her small, bright orbs, which no glasses had ever disfigured. Very handsome, she added, returning the jewel. Very liberal. In my time, a cameo set in pearls was thought sufficient, but it's the hand that sets off the ring, isn't it, my dear Mr. Archer? And she waved one of her tiny hands with small, pointed nails and rolls of aged fat encircling the wrist like ivory bracelets. Mine was modeled in Rome by the great Ferengiani. You should have maize done. No doubt he'll have it done, my child. Her hand is large. It's these modern sports that spread the joints, but the skin is white. And when's the wedding to be? She broke off, fixing her eyes on Archer's face. Oh, Mrs. Welland murmured, while the young man, smiling at his betrothed, replied, As soon as ever it can, if only you'll back me up, Mrs. Mingott. We must give them time to get to know each other a little better, Mama. Mrs. Welland interposed, with the proper affectation of reluctance, to which the ancestress rejoined, "'Know each other? Fiddlesticks! Everybody in New York has always known everybody. Let the young man have his way, my dear. Don't wait till the bubble's off the wine. Marry them before Lent. I may catch pneumonia any winter now, and I want to give the wedding breakfast.' These successive statements were received— with the proper expressions of amusement, incredulity, and gratitude. And the visit was breaking up in a vein of mild pleasantry when the door opened to admit the Countess Olenska, who entered in bonnet and mantle, followed by the unexpected figure of Julius Beaufort. There was a cousinly murmur of pleasure between the ladies, and Mrs. Mingott held out Ferengiani's model to the banker, Ah, oh, Beaufort, this is a rare favor. She had an odd, foreign way of addressing men by their surnames. Thanks. I wish it might happen oftener, said the visitor in his easy, arrogant way. I'm generally so tied down, but I met the Countess Ellen in Madison Square, and she was good enough to let me walk home with her. Oh, I hope the house will be gayer now that Ellen's here, cried Mrs. Mingott with glorious effrontery. "'Sit down, sit down, Beaufort. Push up the yellow armchair. Now I've got you, I want a good gossip. I hear your ball was magnificent, and I understand you invited Mrs. Lemuel Struthers. Well, I've a curiosity to see the woman myself.' She had forgotten her relatives, who were drifting out into the hall under Ellen Olenska's guidance. Old Mrs. Mingott had always professed a great admiration for Julius Beaufort, and there was a kind of kinship in their cool, domineering way and their shortcuts through the conventions. 
Now she was eagerly curious to know what had decided the Beauforts to invite, for the first time, Mrs. Lemuel Struthers, the widow of Struthers' shoe polish, who had returned the previous year from a long initiatory sojourn to Europe to lay siege to the tight little citadel of New York. Of course, if you and Regina invite her, the thing is settled. Well, we need new blood and new money, and I hear she's still very good-looking, the carnivorous old lady declared. In the hall, while Mrs. Welland and May drew on their furs, Archer saw that the Countess Olenska was looking at him with a faintly questioning smile. "'Of course you know already about May and me,' he said, answering her look with a shy laugh. "'She scolded me for not giving you the news last night at the opera. I had her orders to tell you that we were engaged, but I couldn't in that crowd.' The smile passed from Countess Olenska's eyes to her lips. She looked younger, more like the bold, brown Ellen Mingott of his boyhood. Of course I know, yes, and I am so glad, but one doesn't tell such things first in a crowd. The ladies were on the threshold, and she held out her hand. Goodbye. Come and see me some day, she said, still looking at Archer. In the carriage, on the way down Fifth Avenue, they talked pointedly of Mrs. Mingott, of her age, her spirit, and all her wonderful attributes. No one alluded to Ellen Olenska, but Archer knew that Mrs. Welland was thinking, It's a mistake for Ellen to be seen. The very day after her arrival, parading up Fifth Avenue at the crowded hours with Julius Beaufort, and the young man himself mentally added, and she ought to know that a man who's just engaged doesn't spend his time calling on married women. But I dare say it's the set she's lived in they do. They never do anything else. And in spite of the cosmopolitan views on which he prided himself, he thanked heaven that he was a New Yorker and about to ally himself with one of his own kind. End of chapter 4 one of the things that I find so disturbing about books like this is the uh, cloistering, judgy way cliques of people or groups of people behave. I've al it's always bugged me since I was a kid. It continues to bug me as an adult. But it was actually a conversation that I had after seeing the Great Gatsby movie that came out recently with Leonardo DiCaprio. It was a conversation I had after that that really kind of made an interesting parallel for me between that book, which is written just a little bit after The Age of Innocence was written, and The Age of Innocence. But to, to make sense of the conversation, you need to know that when I taught high school in New York City, one one year, one of my girls, after we're reading The Great Gatsby and their eyes were watching God in, in rep with each other, they, they read both of them, uh, one of the girls said, Miss, this Gatsby book. And I said, yes. And she said, I liked it. And I said, yes. And she said, but really, it's all just saying white folks is crazy. And I thought, why yes, actually. <laughs> white folks behaving badly actually can be the, the summation of quite a few novels that have to do with rich white people. And then I started thinking about 
Dynasty and Dallas and all of those TV shows that were really popular in the, the late 80s and, and early 90s. And we, we actually called them Dallasty because that just kind of summed up the whole genre. And how much fun people seem to have watching really rich people be bad. And then this book comes along. And it, it isn't really about that. These are, of course, extremely wealthy people. But there's more to it than that. And at the beginning, I mentioned that I was getting some really great comments over on the Craftlet site in the comment section of the show notes. And I thought I would share uh, a couple of them with you because these, these are notes from people who read the book in high school and did enjoy it. So here, here is the first one I wanted to share with you. This is from Jessica. I read Age of Innocence on my own accord in high school, not long before the film came out, so I must have been turning 16. I absolutely loved it. I'm all right, having been a freak. As with most of Edith Wharton's books, what captured me was the bittersweet and poignant atmosphere the characters live in. I wasn't a live fast, die young, leave a good looking corpse sort of girl. And having moved in the eighth grade to a conservative Christian, Republican, white as white bread rodeo town from an eclectic, diverse, arts-driven neighborhood in Seattle, I think I had a different view of the social expectations and constructs that I was experiencing and reading about. Simply being aware of them was probably a starting point of difference from my classmates who'd basically grown up altogether. My concept of age, time, mortality was still developing, sure, but with a backdrop of Victorian and family-wide morbidness to give some awareness to the flitting nature of things. With all the time she devotes to the inner struggle between being true to oneself and sacrificing to keep the social order smooth and comfortable, I remember really understanding and applying it to where I was with my peers, and as a general question-raising viewpoint directed at society overall. While she doesn't go into long, outright moral lectures like Henry James is so fond of, Wharton also doesn't overtly question the way things are. What she does is point out the pain and strife and lack of joy that, quote, the way things are or should be, unquote, tends to have as a byproduct of being upheld, and let that bring the question of why to the reader. I think Age of Innocence gave me a bit of a glimpse into what might happen if I allowed external influence to override my inner compass. And since I cried a lot reading her, it was pretty easy to point at that result and say, no thank you. I also recall loving how she brought the character's inner dialogue to the reader and finding it funny and honest while it smarted and stung and just plain old hurt. Sarcasm is for the ages, and Wharton does it well. I just thought that was such a beautiful comment. I wanted to share it with you. And I have one other about just reading Edith Wharton uh, in general. And this is from Lauren. I remember having to read Ethan Fromm as a sophomore in high school. It made no impression on me at all. But to be fair, neither did most literature at that point in my life. I was a science nerd from bottom to top, and literature was just a graduation requirement. I'm glad to say I've matured since then. I'm glad that I didn't read Age of Innocence as a young person. I probably would have thought it was a bunch of archaic nonsense, but reading and listening to it now, I realize I've been dealing with this kind of class snobbery all my life. I went to a posh prep school on scholarship with kids from the families with the right names and wondered why I never fit in. I had been taught that anyone could be and do anything if they worked hard enough, and as long as you were talking about employment, that was true enough. But socially, 
I would never be anything but that kid from the trailer park, even though I wouldn't hear the word trailer trash for several more years. It didn't matter that my family had been in the New World since the early 1600s. Whatever money they had was long gone, and with it went our social standing. When I moved to the South, I found the same thing, just under a different guise. I used to say, if my grandmother didn't go to school with your grandmother, I will never matter, without truly appreciating how true that was. The fact that I'm not from around here is seldom mentioned, but I am reminded of it at least once a week, and I've been living in the same Arkansas town for over 10 years. Listening to this book may prove to be painful for me, but I still thank you for bringing it to me and the rest of the Craftlet family. I think it's time has come, at least for me. And boy, if any, if anything sums up why I love doing this podcast and why I think these books are so important, it is that. It is, it is knowing that what is involved in these books and what these books have to say to us, it doesn't change. The classics really don't change. And how they affect us and how they reflect our worlds and human nature and all of that, it, it's just sometimes heartbreaking and sometimes beautiful and sometimes both. And Edith Wharton, I wasn't ready for Edith Wharton for a long time. And I, I think I am now too. I remember my husband saying, even when he went to Slovakia, that uh, the English teacher who you worked with told him that because she didn't have anybody in the graveyard, it didn't matter that she had lived there for 30 years. She wasn't someone who belonged. She would always be an outsider. And I didn't really get the depth of that. I mean, I understood it, obviously, you know, intellectually, but I didn't really get that outsiderness until later. And I, I think I'm glad I waited a long time to read Edith Wharton because I, I too think it matters more to me now than it would have when I was younger. So I hope you enjoyed today's chapters three and four. I hope you enjoyed listening to the letters from our listeners, and I hope you come back next week to hear more. You can see links and find out more at the show notes at just-the-books.com. You can like us on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, and don't forget, you can leave a comment in the show notes and be put into the drawing for the awesome jewelry. There's a little May Welland Lily of the Valley. There's some other symbolic things that you won't get quite yet, but the jewelry is gorgeous. There are pictures in the show notes and instructions for how to participate in the raffle. Thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. This episode brought to you by Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories for heart and home. And Knit Circus, the e-newsletter delivered to your mailbox, bringing you three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at www.knitcircus.com. And Pennywise Consulting, technology solutions for your small business. And links to all of our sponsors can be found in the sidebar of the show notes at craftlit.com. Please visit them as their support for the show is one of the things that keeps it free for you.